0: a a funny proverb that you may have heard in our world today. The saying is this, excuses are like belly buttons. Everyone has one. One of the problems that you see God exploring in scriptures is the problem of our making excuses about the things that we do. Uh, you can imagine as you think about yourself, if something happens, we make an excuse how that's not our fault. If uh, we forget something, well, the excuse is to show how that's not our fault. Uh, even if someone were to bring something to our attention, we can sometimes say, well, uh, the, the reason for my failure is somehow your, your fault. Uh, we, we don't like to take that kind of blame. We like to take Excuses for ourselves, and said. And one of the things that you certainly see in the scriptures is this seems to be the DNA of humanity. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter three, and you read there about how everyone had an excuse for their sin. It was not Adam's fault, and it wasn't Eve's fault. It was everybody else's fault. And and so, one of the things that God is is doing in the book of Ezekiel, and is particularly here in chapter eighteen is going to try to rid them of excuses. And one of the things that's important about remembering this purpose in in Ezekiel is that you have not only Ezekiel preaching to the captives who are in Babylon about the events that are going on back in Judah and in Jerusalem, but more importantly, Ezekiel is given a task To reform the hearts of the people. Remember, they are the remnant. They are the ones through whom there is going to be a return to come back into the land. And so Ezekiel's just not simply telling them, hey, bad things are going on in Jerusalem and you're worthy of judgment but has to spend an awful amount of time explaining what God wants and to get their hearts ready to be able to repent. And so one of the key pictures that we're going to look at tonight in Ezekiel 18 is the ending of excuses. Now, if you've read Ezekiel 18, you might know Ezekiel 18, 20 really well. The soul that sins will die. And I want us to spend our, our lesson tonight thinking about why that's here. We, we can lift that out and use that to argue against other groups about various things. But why was Ezekiel proclaiming that message? Why was this so important For the people in captivity to hear, and we're going to talk about how this will then generate our own repentance and new hearts before God. I want you to notice in chapter 18 of Ezekiel that you have a picture of the mindset of the people, and it's depicted in a proverb. We're told there in verse 1 The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb in the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. What an interesting uh, proverb seems to be going around. The, The people who not only are in captivity, but according to Jeremiah, also the people who remained in the land are all saying this proverb. And essentially the proverb is this, it's not our fault. The reason we are experiencing punishment is because of what our parents did and our grandparents and our great-grandparents and all the prior generations. And that's the image of the proverb. The fathers ate the sour grapes, but we're the one with our teeth set on it. We're the one dealing with the consequence of what they ate. And so God is now going to have to come to them and and deal with this very proverb. But I want you to get a sense of where the people are. They are just looking at this and saying, we didn't do anything wrong, but we're bearing the punishment of our parents and grandparents and prior generations. Now, if you've thought about this, you may wonder where you would get such an idea, but uh, you might remember that you have places like in Exodus 34 in verses 6 and 7 that could probably be misunderstood to be heard that way. You might remember how God revealed himself to Israel. In Exodus 34 in verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, "'The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious.'" slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And I wonder if they are not using this and saying, Well, the fathers are the ones that are doing something wrong, but we're bearing the punishment of their sins. And isn't that what Exodus 34 is saying? Which I don't have time for Exodus 34, but here's my parenthesis. No, that's not what that's saying. And here God is going to prove that. He's going to spend this whole chapter saying that's not what that means. Notice in verse 3, we have, as I live, declares the Lord God, This proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Now here's his answer. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So I want you to notice, she says, I'm going to eradicate this proverb. I'm going to give you a teaching so that you're never going to say again, the reason I'm bearing punishment is because of what my, my parents or grandparents or prior generations had done. And you'll notice his first answer there in verse four is he simply says, I want you to know that every life belongs to me. And that's worth stopping and thinking about for a minute. Every life is owned by God. Every life belongs to him. And one of the the points of why God would say something like that and try to draw people to that mindset is to get an understanding of a reality that we are not just merely subject to a series of unfortunate events. That... Things are just going on and we have just randomly had to deal with some strange things. But that God is in control and every life belongs to him. And that there should not be this fatalistic mindset that the people have. Because I want you to think about what they're doing. They're saying, we don't have any control. It's because of what other people have done that we're in this circumstance. And so what are we supposed to do? And I want you to get a sense that that is kind of their excuse or their cop-out of sorts Is well. There's nothing for us to do. It's everybody else before us that has put us into this mess that the wheels of life have been set into motion and and we're just being crushed by the gears at this point. And, and God is stepping in first and saying, wait, wait, wait. Every life belongs to me. Things are not just Going on out of control, but I am in control, and you are not doomed to a particular outcome, regardless of what you do. And second, along with that, his answer only the person who sins will die. And this is something very important. You're not going to be punished. By because of your parents' sin or because of your grandparents' sin. You are not bearing the weight before God of what people in your past have done. Only the person who sins will die. Or to state this another way, a very important truth, you will receive the outcome that is rightly given to you. There will not be standing before God and saying, wait, wait, that's because of somebody else. You will only have before you what you have done. Only the person who sins will die. Not you will die because of others. And what now you see God doing is he's going to spend his time illustrating this. This is a, an, a very lengthy illustration. We'll, we'll look at some of it and then summarize some of it as well. But I want you to get a, a, a feel and a sense of what you see God expressing in this illustration. Notice verse 5. So if a, right, if a man is righteous and does what is just and right... And if he does not eat on the mountains, or lift his eyes to the idols or the house of the house of Israel, and does not defile his neighbor's wife, or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, and does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment, and does not lend an interest, or take any profit, or withhold his hand from injustice, uh, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully he is righteous he will surely live declares the lord god so i want you to see the first picture that he begins but just quite simply here is a person who does not do the things and i want you to notice a lot of the list is the things that judas could condemn for he they are not committing those sins but rather are doing what God has prescribed. And the end of that paragraph is he is righteous, he will surely live. But that's really not the thrust of the point. The next paragraph is because in the next paragraph in verse 10, it says, but he fathers a son who is violent, a shudder of blood. "...who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and the needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends at interest, and takes profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all of these abominations. He shall surely die." his blood shall be on himself. So here is this righteous man who has a son and the son basically lives in complete opposite to the father. What will happen to the father? He will live. What will happen to the son? He will surely die. Notice he pushes the illustration further in verse 14. Suppose that man has a son who sees all the sins that his father has done he sees and does not do likewise. And you might now notice the gist of listing all of the very same sins that he's been listing twice so far now for the third time. So the violent person, the one who is wicked, he also has a son, but that son sees all the sins of the father and does not do what the father has done. You will notice in, at the end of verse 17, he shall surely live. As for the father, he practiced extortion, robber, robbed his brother, and did what was not good among his people. Behold, he will die for his iniquity. And so here is this great illustration that is put before the people to give them the sense that if a wicked person does wickedness, that's his punishment. If a righteous person does righteous, then that is their reward. Now notice verse 21 But if a wicked person turns away from all of his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he has done. He shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not that he, rather that he should turn from his way and live. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same as abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin that he has committed for them, he shall die. This is the context of what verse 20 is saying that the soul that sins shall die. And I want you to notice some key points that God is is describing here as he begins to attempt to move these people to have a right heart before God. One of the beautiful things that God describes here in verse 21 is he simply describes that repentance is possible. Not only do you see it described that the son can learn from the father and do the opposite. Here the father is violent and does all these terrible things and it says that the son sees all that and does none of those things, that son will live. But you will also notice the turning in verse 21 that it says there, a wicked person turns away from all of his sins that he has committed and keeps all the statutes and does what is just and right, he will live. He will not surely die. Big point number one, repentance is possible. That as individuals, we are not doomed by our parents sinning. Having wicked parents does not mean that you have to be wicked. Having a wicked family does not mean that now you are stuck on the trajectory of wickedness. And now that is the path that you must take because everyone in your past had that same lineage. No, here's a picture here that you are not doomed to sin even if your parents set you on a course in that particular path. And I think this is an important picture because... In our culture today, it seems like our society wants to say that if you had bad parents or if you had no parents or if you were brought up in a bad environment, you had no choice but to just continue in evil. And God is saying, no, that's not true. You can choose the path of your life. Repentance is possible. You are not set into a fatalistic course and off you go and there is no veering or turning in any way possible. You can choose that path. Or to put that another way, you don't have to replicate what you saw your parents doing. You don't have to do what they did. You don't have to be like them. You know, that can be a challenge on a lot of levels. You can be like, I'm becoming like my father or becoming like my mother. But you don't have to be. That doesn't have to be the path you go. And he's giving us that picture here is that it is possible to go a different direction. It is possible for the son to look at what the parents did and said, I'm going another way. It is possible here for the wicked person in all of their sins to stop and do what is right. You are not doomed to follow that past. And I hope that is something that as you talk to people in the world, that you can communicate that picture of hope. Just because you had a terrible start in life doesn't mean you have to have a terrible end. Just because you were set in the wrong direction doesn't mean you need to keep going that direction. It's easy and, and easy to keep that direction and challenging to turn off of that. But God is showing it's possible. You don't have to go that way. And we don't have to cast all the blame on, well, because of what they did, I can't help it. And one of the things that God is doing here is saying you are responsible for your life and you are responsible for your decisions. Second, I want you to notice what else he says there in verse 23. In verse 23, he says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? I want you to think about that for a minute, and I want you to consider if that is your vision of God. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He is not sitting on his throne going, all right, I get to get somebody else today. I'm so excited. That is not the view of God. He does not want any to perish. And I think this is so important that he communicates this to us. Here is God's view of how much he cares for every single person, how much he wants every person to have life and not punishment. This is what you see the Apostle Paul arguing in Romans chapter 5. He's trying to express how much more could God demonstrate his love for us in that while we were enemies and sinners and weak and helpless, he would send his own son. If he is up there rubbing his hands going, can't wait to get another, why would he even send his son at all? He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And here is Ezekiel proclaiming that, that God is not wanting people to perish. And for us to hear that you're not doomed to sin, that you're not doomed to eternal punishment, that it is possible to turn and live. It is possible to go a different direction. By the same token, I want you to notice the picture of verses 21 through 24 in a similar way. Did you notice that verse 21 said, here is this wicked person who is filled with all of these sins and all of this wickedness, and yet he turns. And it says he will live. And it also then goes about describing here in verse 24. Here is this righteous person who's doing all this righteousness. But that person turns away from the righteousness. And begins to do what a wicked person does. Middle of verse 24. And asks the question, shall he live? Notice what the rest of verse 24 says. None of the righteous deeds that he has done will be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin that he has committed for them he shall die. Sometimes religion, I'm going to use that word accommodatively to just talk about everything out there, presents God like this. Here's all your good deeds. Set it on the scale. Here's all your bad deeds, set it on the scale. And when you stand before God, hopefully, hopefully, if you have just a few more good deeds, you're gonna be all right with God. But you know, if you have a few bad ones over here and you kind of tilt the scale up this way, well then, uh uh-oh, it's not gonna go very well for you. I want you to notice that that's not what God says. God has no vision of which we stand before God. And put all of the deeds on the scale and go, I hope you have more good than bad. Here we go. Yeah, back and forth. And we're watching carefully. Oh, what did I do yesterday? I sure hope that doesn't tip the scales the wrong way. That's not the picture. I want you to notice what the picture is. You're evaluated for right now. You're evaluated for right now. I could have 47 years of sin, but if right now I turn, I'm evaluated for right now. Or by the same token, I could have 47 years of righteousness and turn wicked right now and I'm evaluated for that right now. There is no 47 years of good, but here's this one bet, So it's okay. You know, I've got some latitude on some sinning for a while because things have been so good for so long. You know, and I, can, I can get away with some things for a while. Nor are you to look at your life and go, man, I have been sinning like crazy. Let me see how many good things I can do to try to get the scale to tip back over. You're evaluated in the present. You're evaluated for right now where you are. Or to say that another way, how you end matters. It's all about how you end. It's not about what the whole journey looked like but how you ended the journey because that's by which you're going to be evaluated and that's what he's saying right here. And I know that we struggle with that. How many times is the question asked? King Manasseh, look at all of the sins and all the terrible things and the killing of children and the blood was strewn all over the place and yet you're told at the very end he repented and we look at that and go... Why do we do that? Because we have a view of this. He's got so many bad sins. I don't know. And God's going, that's not how it works. You're evaluated for how you end the journey. For how about Solomon to the other side? For all of the good. And then ends away from God. It works the same direction. And that's the picture that's being given to us here, is that you're evaluated for what you are doing right now. It is all about how you end. Now, what this brings up in the hearts of the people is somewhat curious. Look at verse 25. Here's what the people say. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Now... I hope we would never say that, but let me just hope we don't think that. Can you imagine for God? God's not just. God's not fair. Here's God's answer to that. Verse 25. Here now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? <laughs> if we're going to start talking about justice and fairness, let's get this clear. God is just. And we're not God is fair and we're not. If there is any lens that we are looking at the world and saying, God is not just, you are looking at it wrong. We are the ones that are not just. We are the ones that are not right. God is just and God is right. Or to say that another way, God is not the problem. We are the problem. And so notice verse 26, when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he does, he shall die. And then verse 27, he does the converse. A wicked person who turns away from all of that wickedness, he will save his life. Essentially, God is saying this, he could not be any more fair with us. Your punishment is squarely because of what you've done. And it's not any fairer than that. There's no curveballs, no surprises. It's you before God and what you've done. End of story. Where you are in that last moment, how your journey ends is everything. And we will be judged strictly by that. And he says, is that not fair? But then I want you to notice how he moves on with that in verse 30. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgression, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So listen to it, how he ends. So turn and live. Great picture that's given here as a reminder about what God is trying to communicate to us. I don't want anyone to die. Now, why has he spent this significant portion of scripture giving all of these illustrations about the father who's righteous, but the son is not righteous, but his son is back to righteous and the soul that sins will die. And that's the punishment that you'll receive. And there's nowhere else to look. It's simply upon us because God is completely fair and just. Why is he doing all of this? Here's one of the big reasons. Because we're never going to repent If we don't get rid of the excuses for why we sin. You know what we like to do? It's everybody else. And that's how this whole thing started. It's not us. It's our parents. And God's going, do you really think that the reason you are in captivity and the reason you are experiencing these things is because you were righteous and it was your parents who were sinning? oh no (laughs) and we know the heart of God if the whole nation had turned against what their parents had done in terms of sin there would not have been this whole captivity and this whole judgment that's why the prophets were even sent what were the prophets saying repent before it's too late you better turn before while you can you've got only so much time left if you turn you can live why would you die And here is our big problem is so often what we do is we blame our sins on everyone else. Well, if you knew my spouse, you know, if you just knew what they did, well, you'd understand why I have to do what I have to do. You'd understand why I have to commit those sins because they're like that. And since they're so terrible and they're so mean, that's why I do that. Or, well, if you only understood what things were like at work, or if you only understood what life was like at home, I mean, my kids, oh my, or my parents, oh my. Or if you only understood what school was like, or if you only understood what... I want you to hear what God's saying. We have to stop making excuses for our sins. The responsibility is squarely on us. We're the ones making the choice. We are the ones to decide. And all that we are doing is attempting to cool that conscience that is saying you're doing wrong by going, well, it's okay because fill in the blank of terrible thing. And we will never move to have the heart of repentance that God wants. If our default is to blame everybody else. How is he going to get these people's heart right? If their proverb is, We're just here because of what our parents did. And God has to say, no, you're in your condition because of what you did. You made your choices, and now you are going to deal with those choices. And I want you to notice the picture of repentance. He gives us two pictures of of repentance that I think are very important. And that'll be the end of our lesson this evening. These two beautiful pictures that he says is, I want you to repent. Notice in verse 30, where he says there, Repent, lest your iniquity be your ruin. I, I, I'm trying to keep it so that you are not bearing the weight of your punishment. I don't want sin to wreck you. I do not delight in the death of anyone. So two pictures he gives in verse 31. He says, cast away from you all the transgressions you have committed. Number one. True repentance. Repentance. Stops making excuses for sin and chooses to throw those sins away. That's the decision that God is wanting the people to make. Cast away from you all of those sins that are going to bring about your eternal death. Can I say it another way? You don't have to follow through with your desires. That's what James 1 said that we were just there a few weeks ago. You don't have to follow through. Desire leads to sin and sin leads to death. And you don't need to follow through on that. We have the power to say no. We do not have to follow through with those temptations. And you have God pleading with the people to cast those sins away. You know, the Apostle Peter made a very similar plea after he gave his first sermon. And he just simply stood up there and said, save yourselves. Save yourselves. We have that choice. Save yourself from this life of sinning. Make the decision to cast those sins far away from you. Stop excusing them. Stop blaming others and just save yourself from those things. Cast them far away. And notice the second thing. It might surprise you. Verse 31. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. And make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Now, the reason I wonder if you think that's interesting, because in chapter 36, he's going to say that God needs to give you a new heart and a new spirit. We'll talk about that when we get there. But for the moment, I want you to notice something that you see God saying here, that we need to cast our sins away. And then we are instructed to have a new heart and have a new spirit so he's begging us to have a different way of thinking and and the new Testament's talking about that i won't go into all that we don't have time but how often the scripture is telling us that we need to renew our minds that we put off the old self that we are pressing forward in a whole new way of thinking and the pictures of the new way of thinking have been presented for us here This new heart, this new spirit that God wants us to have begins with the pieces that God has laid out in this very sermon to the people. Number one, our lives belong to God. And therefore, each one of us is going to stand before God and say, here's what I did with my life. Every life belongs to him. And we are accountable to him. I think about that every time in our culture today. People say, it's my life. I can do what I want. No, it's not. It's my body. I can do what I want. No, it's not. It is not yours. It is God's. It is God's life. And he owns these bodies. And we will be accountable for what we've done with these bodies. Number two, we don't bear the punishment of anyone else's sinning. You will not be accountable for what anybody else has done. You will not hold that over you. And further, we are not destined to sin and punishment. We are not doomed to go, well, because of my parents, you know, that's just the way. You no, know, that's that God has freed us from that kind of thinking that you don't have to be destined to sin and punishment because God is just. And ultimately, the reality is we're the problem. God is not the problem. And so, therefore, we need to not make excuses for our sinning, but instead, please see God who is saying this. He doesn't want any to perish. That's not a New Testament concept. That's right here. I do not desire for anyone to have eternal punishment. And he's proven that by saying it doesn't matter if you have lived your whole life in rebellion to God. If you turn today, you will be judged today for where you're at. We have a hard time with that. We have a hard time with that. We kind of feel like, well, isn't there something more? No, no. That's the beauty of what God is offering, is saying you can be judged today if you will turn away from sin. If you'll cast those sins far from you and develop within you a new heart and a new spirit that is seeking to follow him with all of your heart. Let's go to God in prayer this evening. Oh, Heavenly Father. It is amazing to think that you can judge us right here in this moment and that none of the sins that we have done in the past can be held against us. Lord, it is staggering to think That all of us can stand before you today clean, pure, forgiven, and guiltless. Lord, thank you for having a heart that desires for none of us to perish because of our sins. We certainly deserve your wrath. And Lord, we can certainly feel that if you put all the sins on the scale, they far outweigh all the righteous things that you've asked us to do. And so, Lord, thank you for not judging us by a scale, but instead judging us for having repentant hearts that turn from sin and seek to have new hearts and new spirits. Lord, tonight, would you please help us to stop the excuses. When our temptations arise, give us the mind to no longer make excuses for caving in, Give us a mind to no longer excuse the sins that we commit. Give us the mind and the spirit to no longer excuse the hidden sins that we keep in our hearts. But rather give us a mind and give us a spirit that purges those things out of our lives and casts them far from us. And Lord, we pray that you would purge us and cleanse us, make us clean. And thank you for for receiving us in this moment. Lord, strengthen us in this moment so that today we would stand before you whole and clean with our minds completely devoted to turning from sin and then carrying that out in this week ahead. Give us that spirit, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus tonight to turn away from sin and see the reason why. What a beautiful hope that we have. That if you will turn from sin today, that the sins of the past are erased. and that, that will no longer be held against you. What a wonderful thought it is to stand free before Him. Can we help you do that today to turn away from sin and follow Him faithfully? Won't you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?